NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Vice President Harris says Israel has a right to fight Hamas, but too many innocent Palestinians have died. More on that this hour. And this week, Republicans running for president meet in Alabama for their fourth debate. Find out how the state is getting ready. Also, the new documentary, Bad Press, follows a tribal newspaper's struggle against censorship. I've seen many times where press freedom is really squashed by tribes. And so I thought I can't let this, you know, happen in my own tribal nation. It's Sunday, December 3rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Israeli military is intensifying its bombardment of southern Gaza on this third day of renewed fighting following the collapse of a week-long ceasefire. The military issued a statement today ordering Palestinians to evacuate several areas around the city of Khan Yunus. The Texas Democratic Party has become the first state Democratic Party in the U.S. to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The party's executive committee unanimously voted on the resolution this weekend. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila has more. Texas Democratic Party Chair Gilberto Hinojosa is calling on Texas Governor Greg Abbott to do more against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the state. It's one part of the resolution that includes supporting diplomatic efforts to release hostages held by Hamas and allowing more humanitarian aid into Gaza. Governor Abbott has continued to express support for Israel since Hamas attacked the country on October 7th. He has directed funding for more security at Jewish schools and synagogues in Texas. Inahosa says he and the party will continue working with advocates to, quote, meet the moment. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. At the U.N. Climate Conference in Dubai, ministers from more than 60 countries are meeting today to discuss the health challenges posed by global warming. It's the first time the annual event has dedicated an entire day to public health. The World Health Organization's Dr. Vanessa Carey spoke to the BBC. We are seeing a very direct impact on our health. It isn't just lung diseases. It's cardiovascular disease or our heart. It is our mental health, it is poor maternal health outcomes, it is an increase in vector-borne diseases, extreme weather that is compromising our infrastructure and our ability to deliver health services. Health is the human experience of climate change in Mm. every way, and it impacts everything we do. Cybersecurity officials say an Iran-backed hacking group is actively targeting U.S. facilities and putting several critical sectors at risk. Officials say hackers targeting companies using an Israeli-made computer system, as NPR's Juliana Kim reports. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency said on Friday that multiple U.S. facilities have been compromised by hackers called Cyber Avengers. The group has been hacking video screens with the message, quote, you have been hacked down with Israel, end quote. The equipment in question is predominantly used in water-related companies. But officials say industries like energy, food and beverage manufacturing, and healthcare are also vulnerable. The agency says Cyber Avengers was also behind the breach at a water authority outside of Pittsburgh on November 25th. And while that attack didn't cause any major disruptions to the water supply, the incident revealed just how vulnerable the nation's critical infrastructure is to cyber attacks. Juliana Kim, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Food and Drug Administration is set to grant approval this week to the first gene editing therapy, and it was developed in Boston. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Swiss partner CRISPR Therapeutics have developed the drug. The medication treats severe cases of sickle cell disease. British regulators approved the drug last month. Police are investigating after a man was stabbed in the parking lot at Kowloon Restaurant in Saugus. Saugus police tell NBC 10. It happened shortly after 9 last night. The man was taken to a local hospital. On Thanksgiving Eve, a brawl at that restaurant led to four people facing charges. Lowell Congresswoman Lori Trahan is calling on a Lowell City Councilor to resign. She told the Lowell Sun that details from a police report on Corey Robinson's domestic assault charges are extremely disturbing. Most Lowell City Councilors also have called on him to step down. Robinson told The Sun that the case against him is based on false allegations. Last night in Toronto, the Bruins beat the Maple Leafs 4-3 in overtime. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Columbus Blue Jackets. This afternoon, the Patriots face the L.A. Chargers at Gillette. It is 45 degrees in Boston, some rain today, some patchy fog, and temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world. And every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. As you support the organizations that have deep meaning in your life, please give to WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A gift of $10 or $15 a month will become something much bigger. It'll create more of the stories we all need to make sense of the world. And it'll inform the conversations that make your world bigger. Turn your small gift into something much bigger. Give at WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And that number again, 1-800-909-9287. You can also give at WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody, and Jay Clayton is in the studio with me, and we are reminding you that listener support is the largest share of our funding, and we would love to hear from you with that support. Uh, WBUR is driven by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives and in our democracy. And we are fueled by the support from listeners who are giving because they want to make a meaningful difference. So please go ahead and make that contribution now, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And what a difference it will make. We often say during our fundraisers that when you give, you're helping us fund the stories that we know are coming around the corner and the ones that we can't anticipate. And a case in point for that, at the end of our fall fundraiser, which happened to be on October 5th. Uh, Meghna Chakrabarty from On Point, Lisa Mullins from All Things Considered, and I were in this studio where Sharon and I are now talking to you about how the the funding that we hoped you would give then would help us prepare for things coming around the corner. Two days later, we all learned of uh, the Hamas attack on Israel, and we've been covering that ever since. NPR has had about three dozen journalists in that region. The number will grow by the end of the year. Each one of them needs ballistic vests that cost anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000 a piece. The helmets that they need cost 500 to $600 a piece. So it's a tremendous 
undertaking for NPR to do this. NPR relies on member stations like WBUR to help fund those expenses. We turn to you to help us do that work. So we're asking you to give what you can right now at 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. And you know, Jay, along the same lines, um, every dollar that a listener gives to support WBUR is supporting so much more than just the voices that, you know, are heard on the radio. We have such a uh, a, a rigorous journalistic enterprise here. We have editors, we have producers, we have engineers, we have so much that makes the journalism that WBUR brings you accurate and clear. And we know that that's what you're counting on. So we're counting on you to go ahead and make that call or go online and make a contribution now to support independent journalism. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And in this season of giving, let us thank you for your contribution. We have these Eton radios. These are those self-powered radios so they run reliably even when you don't have electricity or you don't happen to have any batteries in the house, you can still get WBUR for all the information that you need. Great to have in an emergency, but just kind of one of those essentials to have around whenever you need it or want it. And you can have one as our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month, normally 20 So this morning, you're going to save a little money. You're going to support WBUR and take the radio as our thanks. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. The website is WBUR.org. As you listen, please give and thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The Israeli offensive is intensifying in southern Gaza. Israel claims to have hit more than 400 Hamas targets. And the Gazan Health Ministry claims more than 15,000 people have been killed since the start of the war, with a large proportion of those being women and children. The warring sides show no sign of reviving their truce, which lasted seven days and collapsed on Friday morning. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley is in Tel Aviv. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, Aisha. What's the status for at least having conversations about reviving a ceasefire? Well, it's pretty much dead. Talks for doing so broke down yesterday in Qatar. And in dueling statements, Israel and Hamas each blamed the other. Hamas also says it will not negotiate any more hostage prisoner exchanges until Israel's attack on Gaza ends. Uh, So it isn't looking good. Um, Meanwhile, the Israeli army insists it is taking care to protect civilians. It has published an interactive map that it says shows civilians how to get to safer areas. But there are now more than 2 million people packed into an even smaller area and borders are closed. Hamas is warning of an impending sanitary crisis with the spread of disease on top of the death from Israeli bombs. And NPR spoke with one Gazan, Jumana Shaheen, about this. Here she is. I think... We are about to face a big environmental crisis. Like the streets are full of uh, garbage and there's no other way or place that people can put it. 
Shaheen says she has evacuated from four different places already. She said the truce offered people a small respite, but now they're packing their bags again to move, but they don't really know where to go. There are increasing calls from the U.S. for Israel to show more restraint. What's the latest on that? Well, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin called it a moral responsibility for Israel to protect civilians. And speaking from Dubai at the climate summit yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris said Israel has the right to go after Hamas, but it does matter how. Here she is. As Israel pursues its military objectives in Gaza, we believe Israel must do more to protect innocent civilians. You've been out talking with Israelis. What are you hearing from them? Well, last night in Tel Aviv, there was a massive rally to bring the remaining hostages home. More than 100 are still being held in Gaza. And people there were very upset that the ceasefire ended. There's also a real feeling that the world has not really recognized Israel's trauma after October 7th. I spoke to 30-year-old Omri Shtivi, the older brother of Idan Shtivi, who's still being held hostage. I say the only priority for me, for all the families, is to bring them back, all, all of them, all the hostages, all, all, all right now. This is our only priority. We don't care about politics. We care about life. We want to save life. And 18-year-old Gali Shamir, who was there with her parents at the rally. I'm here just to raise awareness because I think that this should be just known everywhere across the world and the world should really take action. And I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable, she says, that the world has not paid more attention to the October 7th massacre and the hostage situation. And you were also in the Israeli-occupied West Bank this weekend, where I understand there's been more violence. Yes. You know, the West Bank is a place controlled by Israel since 1967 with a large Palestinian population. And it's sort of, it's really dissected with a wall and with checkpoints and certain roads that are only for the army and Israeli settlers. Palestinians there told me life has always been difficult under what they call the occupation, but since October 7th, they say it's unbearable. They say roads are blocked, checkpoints are closed, more roads are blocked. And of course, Israel says it needs the heightened security after what happened. But Palestinians I spoke with say Israeli soldiers are acting with impunity. I was in the town of Betunia where a young boy was recently killed, and I spoke with 18-year-old Mohammed Shuaibi about the tense situation. Here's what he said. We could be walking in the street and take an Israeli bullet for no reason, he told me. We cannot guarantee our life. He told me he does not want to stay here. He would like to travel anywhere where there's no occupation and a better life. And Israeli human rights organizations say scores of Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Aisha. The resumption, the resumption of fighting in Gaza poses a challenge for the Biden administration. President Biden has come under fire for his steady support of Israel, while images of civilian deaths in Gaza flood social media and, and sway voter sentiment in the U.S. And some comments made by Vice President Kamala Harris to Arab leaders while attending the U.N. climate summit in Dubai are, as we just heard, getting a lot of attention. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro joins us now to help break it all down. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, good morning, Aisha. 
So Vice President Harris made some pretty strong statements yesterday about the U.S. position on a post-war Gaza and West Bank. What can you tell us about what she said? Yeah, a couple specific things. Um, you know, she said that under no circumstances would the U.S. permit forced relocation of Palestinians, um, that the U.S. opposes any changes to Gaza's borders after the war. And she told reporters that Israel has the right to defend itself, but that far too many Palestinians have been killed. And, you know, this is all very tricky politically for President Biden. I mean, the president's seeking re-election, but has seen a decline in approval with younger voters and Arab Americans in particular, key Democratic base groups that are upset with his handling of the war. You know, there's a year to go until next year's presidential election, and he has time to rally Democrats, but people are very passionate about this, and it's going to be tough for Biden to strike a balance with younger voters, Arab Americans on the one hand, with Jewish Americans and persuadable voters in the middle who want, to, who want support to tilt toward Israel. So moving closer to home, the Republican National Committee's primary calendar is out, and it looks like they'll have their delegates nominated pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I don't think people fully had their heads wrapped around the fact that this is all going to be over pretty quickly. You know, after Super Tuesday, March 5th, 16 states vote that day. Almost half the delegates will be allocated. And by the end of March, more than 70% of them will already be distributed. So that means the GOP nominee is largely going to be known before Trump's trials even start in earnest. You know, remember, his first trial date is March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday. And this means that despite polling showing that about half of Republicans say they wouldn't want to vote for Trump if he's convicted of a crime, the nominee is going to be known long before there could be a possible conviction for any of the charges he's facing. And on Friday, D.C. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin um, ruled that Donald Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution. Um, and, and claiming immunity as a former president was a big chunk of his defense strategy in these cases. So where does that leave things? Sure. I mean, this came down to whether the court bought that Trump was performing a official duties as a, as a as president during that rally on the ellipse before the crowd moved to the Capitol on January 6th, or if he was acting as a candidate. You know, the court said that he was a first-term president who was up for re-election and acting as a candidate, and that means he's not immune from lawsuits against him from, say, Congress or law enforcement officers who are injured that day. So this leaves Trump pretty vulnerable to these lawsuits now, which will be allowed to continue. Trump, though, of course, could and likely will appeal either to the D.C. Court of Appeals or directly to the Supreme Court. So this is probably not going to be the final word on this. In the about 30 seconds we have left, the fourth GOP debate is happening this week in Alabama. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, the same thing I've been looking for in the last two debates is what I'm looking for here, which is whether Nikki Haley or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis can separate themselves to be the principal alternative to Trump. Are they going to directly go after each other, you know, strategically here? You know, uh, Haley, the former South Carolina governor, has been surging lately, not just in polling, but with a big endorsement from the Koch brothers political network. Super PACs DeSantis, uh, who's supporting DeSantis, have been going after Haley, trying to drag her down, even comparing her to Hillary Clinton. What is DeSantis going to do on the stage? That is a big question for me. That's NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much, Domenico. Hey, thank you. Yes, the Republican presidential candidates are going to be in Alabama on Wednesday for their fourth debate this primary season. But are they going to be able to get young voters as charged up and excited as they were at the football game where the Alabama Crimson Tides beat the Georgia Bulldogs yesterday? Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio reports from Tuscaloosa. 
Alabama Crimson Tide football games always start the same way. The Million Dollar Marching Band plays the school's fight song. These young musicians practice at the Moody Music Building on campus. That's where Wednesday's GOP debate will take place. Yeah, we heard about it a couple of weeks ago, um, that they were going to come and they were going to shut down certain parts of Moody for a period of time. That's Lauren Bruce. She's a University of Alabama freshman, and she plays the clarinet for the Million Dollar Band. Bruce says having the debate in Tuscaloosa is nice, but as for the politics... I don't know what I feel about anything. I'm just mostly excited that it's here because I think it's just a cool opportunity. This is also the first time a presidential debate has been held in Alabama. For John Wall, the youngest GOP state party leader in the country, the fact that it's being held on a college campus should send a strong message to young potential voters like Bruce. It's incredibly important for me that we do reach out to young voters. I think there's not a voting block out there that it's not more important to engage with because these are the people who are going to inherit the decisions that are being made right now in Washington, D.C., but there are those who think that rings hollow. If the GOP wants the youth vote, then I would recommend inviting students to the debate, which doesn't seem like that's happened. That's Dr. A.J. Bauer. He teaches political communication at the university. He says the GOP may be talking a lot about young voters, but there's not much to show from it. There is going to be some kind of watch party uh, at this club next to the stadium, but I don't really see a whole lot of direct youth outreach here. And Bauer is also questioning the value of holding the Tuscaloosa event at all. Former President Donald Trump, the current GOP frontrunner, is skipping this debate just like the previous ones. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You're listening to NPR News. Austin Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Charles Dickens' time in Lowell, now through December 24th. Tickets at mrt.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, that number is 1-800-909-9287. And you can give online at WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in the studio with Jay Clayton. And uh, coming right up on Weekend Edition, you'll hear about how Colorado's booming urban population flipped the state from red to blue, and that led to the passage of a referendum on reintroducing gray wolves. But it turns out the growing human population may be too big for the gray wolves to thrive. You will get that story and so much more coming up on Weekend Edition. And that's just one aspect of what you can be thinking about how much you count on WBUR 
every day, whether it's on the radio, online, with podcasts, through our newsletters, at CitySpace, all the ways that you keep up with, ha- with, with what's happening uh, here in Boston and around the country and around the world. The way to show your support and to keep WBUR thriving is to make a phone call or to go online, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We are covering the uh, ways that the uh, conflict in the Middle East and Gaza and Israel is resonating here in Boston and has been resonating here in Boston. We are covering the family shelter system, a story that started out as a little thing and has become much bigger and shows no signs of relenting anytime soon. So we're going to need to stay on that. We're covering the MBTA. We are covering so much that just requires deep resources and continued reporting, and it requires listener support. It's the largest share of the funding that brings you all of this coverage that you depend on and that our community depends on. So as you give to organizations that have meaning in your life and across our community, we hope you'll put WBUR on your list and give this morning. The number is 1-800-909-9287. And the website where you can give is WBUR.org. And I just want to underline something uh, that Jay just said. Listener support is the largest share of our funding. What we do is we rely primarily on voluntary contributions from our listeners. And that's what lets us provide the programs, the stories, the conversations that you count on. So please take a moment, and it really does only take a moment. It's about a one or two minute transaction. And make a phone call, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. When you're there or when you call, take away one of our Eton radios as our thanks for your contribution this morning. These are super cool. They run on their own power. Yeah, you can use electricity or batteries if you have them, but when you don't, in those times when batteries and and electricity are not an option, say during a power outage, these radios continue to run so you continue to have access to the vital information that you need. A great thing to have, a great thing to gift to someone at the holidays, and you can have one as our thanks when you support WBUR with $12 a month or $144 all at once, if you'd rather do it that way. These will be $20 a little bit later on, so take advantage of this right now when you give at WBUR.org or one 800 909 9287. It's great uh, to get one of these Eton radios. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a wonderful addition to uh, to your household to have this. And it's also going to remind you, uh, you know, this is going to sound a little odd, but, you know, it might remind you who gave it to you, right? Uh, WBUR is happy to send this your way for your uh, generous contribution of $12 a month. And your generous contribution of $12 a month is supporting WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. 
and from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Preliminary data just came out showing that in 2022, the number of suicides in the U.S. rose by 3%. We're now going to look at one piece of that report, suicide rates among men 75 and older. They continue to be two or three times higher than many other demographic groups. And before we get any further, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. We're joined by Kim Van Orden, co-director of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide at the University of Rochester. Thank you for coming on. Delighted to be here, Aisha. I understand that we're not saying anything new here, but this is something I didn't know. Elderly men, especially white men, have had higher rates of suicide than other groups for, for some time now. Why is that? Well, first, Aisha, thanks for asking this question, because suicide in later life is a significant public health problem around the world, not just the U.S. And so you combine that with population aging, the magnitude of that problem is is increasing. So as to why older adults have higher rates, that's actually a more complicated question, because suicide isn't caused by any one factor. My colleagues and I like to describe these as the five D's of late life suicide. So that's depression, disconnection, disability, disease, and access to deadly means. So depression, most people know about. It's present in most older people who die by suicide. Disability refers to any form of functional impairment like trouble walking or sensory loss. Disease means physical illness. And then disconnection, that's social disconnection. And then access to deadly means is a key one. In the U.S., that means firearms. So are older men more likely to be depressed than younger men? Actually, no. In fact, later life is characterized by less depression, greater well-being, more positive emotions, and better capacity to manage emotions. So on average, Aisha, an older person is probably quite a bit happier than, than you or me right now. So that can be kind of seeming like a paradox. And so Mm -hmm. the way I like to think about it is that the healthy trajectory in later life is one of greater well-being. But some older people get off that path. And so some people end up having all of those risk factors pile up. And as well, older men are less likely to share their suicidal thoughts and they're more likely to die when they have them. They use more immediately lethal means, and they're more planful. Mm. And is that why it's older, elderly men have higher rates of suicide? Is it because they're not seeking help? They're not opening up? Yes, as well, using the more lethal means. So things like if someone were to take pills, there's time for them to be rescued. If you use a firearm, unfortunately, that's much less likely to happen. What about mental health care, like therapy, the way people think about that? Are older people going to therapists and asking for help, or are there therapists specializing in treating the elderly? Absolutely. And so I'm I'm a geropsychologist, which means that I specialize in working with older people, and I, I see older people for therapy. And so 
one thing that's interesting is they speak about their depressive symptoms a little differently. So you might hear things like trouble concentrating or trouble sleeping. And they're more likely to share those symptoms with their primary care physician. Do enough primary care physicians understand that? And are, are they doing those referrals or, or working with therapists like yourself to, to get help for an older person who's saying, I'm having trouble sleeping, I'm, I'm having trouble concentrating? It does happen, and we need it to happen more. So one thing we need to do as a society, as more people have the privilege of living longer, is have more professionals who work with older people. A lot of what we hear about is suicide among younger generations or specific demographic groups. And often we don't hear much about older people dying by suicide or the idea that that is a concern. You know, absolutely. And my sense is the reason we don't talk about it as much is our society is deeply embedded in ageism. There's, you know, it's kind of the belief that aging is kind of an awful thing, that when you're older, it makes sense that you don't feel good. And that's a reason that patients don't seek help. So I hear this all the time in my practice. So we as a society need to, to value our older people more. Kim Van Orden, co-director of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide at the University of Rochester and a clinical therapist herself. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having this conversation, Aisha. And that number for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, once again, is 988. Gray wolves were once plentiful in Colorado before they were wiped out by humans. They played an important role in the ecosystem. And in 2020, Coloradans voted to reintroduce gray wolves to the state. Now the first group is set to be released onto the west slope of the Rocky Mountains. But it's not clear whether there are too many people in Colorado for wolves to thrive. NPR's Kirk Sigler has the story. The bright lights of Denver shining like diamonds. Few western states have been romanticized more for their beauty than Colorado. You are Colorado. Guess he'd rather be in Colorado. Back in John Denver's 1970s heyday, there were barely two million Coloradans. But in the last decade alone, the state's population grew at twice the national rate. Tens of thousands of cars a day drive these crowded mountain highways. So could a wolf that may have to roam 30 miles a day to find food survive here now? Lots of barriers. I mean, just thinking about how wolves would try to even cross Interstate 70 through this canyon right here with all these trucks and cars racing by. West of Glenwood Canyon, Perry Will, a retired Colorado game warden of 40 years, is standing at a popular fishing area along the interstate. I'll be quite honest, we're crowding six million people in the state of Colorado. We're not Wyoming, we're not Idaho, we're not Montana. I wish we were, right? In a black cowboy hat and horseshoe mustache, Will is talking about those more rural states where the federal government reintroduced wolves in the 1990s after decades of studies. But he calls what happened here biology by ballot box. In 2020, Colorado voters passed a proposition requiring wolves to be reintroduced to the land within three years. I've been a wildlife advocate my whole life. It doesn't really matter whether you love wolves or hate wolves, right? It's not about that. I don't think it's fair to the species. 
I think they're going to be in constant conflict in this state. For skeptics like Will, there's irony. Colorado used to be a red state where wolf reintroduction never would have flown. Now its booming population is liberal enough to support it, but is it now too crowded for wolves to have a chance? Joanna Lambert doesn't think so. In Boulder, she's a wildlife biology professor at the University of Colorado and helped write the ballot measure. Wolves are superb dispersers. Wolves are highly intelligent, they're adaptable, they're flexible, and if given half a chance, they do well. Lambert is also a well-known expert on wolves in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, where she says the human population has also grown a lot since the 90s, but generally the wolves have adapted. It turns out they don't like to be around humans. They're not going to be running around in neighborhoods, right? And they're not going to be running around in the streets of Aspen. They're going to be remaining in areas where they can access their prey base. Like elk, which Colorado happens to have more of than any other western state, some 300,000. The wolves that will initially be relocated here from Oregon are adapted to eating elk. State wildlife officials spent the last three years holding public forums. They convened a citizen group with polar opposite views on the wild canines, which helped write a management plan that's widely seen as a compromise. We know that wolves will do well here. Reed DeWalt with Colorado Parks and Wildlife is helping lead the reintroduction. We wanted to make sure this was from the get-go done with the citizens of Colorado and not done to the citizens of Colorado. The wolves will be considered experimental under the Federal Endangered Species Act, meaning they can be harassed or killed if they're causing problems with, say, livestock. But the story of wolves in Colorado today feels a lot different than the clashes between ranchers and environmentalists that have dominated headlines in the West for years. It is chilly this morning. One frigid morning near the Breckenridge Ski Resort, Orion Virtel stood at a favorite trailhead at the edge of a neighborhood of condos, restaurants, and a Whole Foods. It's frightening. It's frightening to think of taking your children, your family, your pets, and just trying to go on a day hike. Even if you bring a weapon, they come in packs. You better be quick. In the 30 years since wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone, they've never attacked humans. Still, Vertel, a local real estate agent, says he'll think twice about taking his young son backpacking if wolves will be around. He thinks voters were ill-informed and thought the canines would get released into some faraway wilderness. I don't think anybody was thinking that they would be released anywhere near residential areas. There's still a lot of trepidation, if not fear, here over wolves returning to a land that's radically changed since the 1940s. Some of the best wolf habitat also happens to be fragmented by luxury homes, resorts, and other legacy development like ranches. Oh, there's a deer. This is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. it really is. In the Crystal River Valley near Aspen, rancher Francie Jacober keeps close tabs on a resident elk herd. With few predators around, they've grown accustomed to grazing leisurely on the cattle pastures beneath the towering Mount Sopras. Then they drop down into the river, which you can see is right over the edge there. You can see the cottonwoods. Jacober chairs the Pitkin County Commission and also sat on that state wolf group. She's an outlier in the ranching world in that she's a reintroduction supporter. I'm hoping that they will scatter the elk, make them move, return them to their migratory habits. The national forests that surround this picturesque valley are among the most visited in the nation. Elk hunting, mountain biking, and internationally famous ski resorts are all big business here. But Jacober says it's wilder than it looks. You know, along the highways, we have a lot of development. But if you get in an airplane and you fly over out here, there's a lot of wilderness, a lot of untouched area. 
And that's where the wolves are going to be. And like it or not, wolves are coming back to Colorado. A few have already migrated down from Yellowstone. Lately, one was spotted just over the New Mexico border, too. This natural dispersion comes as the state plans to begin reintroducing more by December 31st. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Carbondale, Colorado. A beloved leader in the world of journalism has died. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin. If you've been a listener to NPR in the last couple of decades, including to this very program, you've probably heard her voice. Maria Emilia Martin was the founder of the nationally syndicated radio program Latino USA. She was also a teacher and mentor to many young journalists in the U.S. and Latin America. Martin began working in journalism in the 1970s. In the early 1990s, when she was an editor at NPR, Austin member station KUT approached her with an idea to create a weekly audio journal of news and culture of interest to Latinos. That became Latino USA. Martin recently recalled what it was like to produce those first episodes. I remember working hundreds of hours. I remember sleeping on the floor of the office and the studio because we wanted to make sure that it sounded great. Others tried to create similar programs in the past, but success was tough to come by. Martin said that in order for such a program to succeed, Latinos had to be in charge. She wanted the show to both express the diversity of the Latino community and unify its members. Imagine the sounds of Calle Ocho and the Bronx and the fields of Fresno. These stories were crying to be told, but also the need was for Latinos to perhaps have more solidarity with each other. Martin left Latino USA 20 years ago. She then founded the Gracias Vida Center for Media in Guatemala, where she trained independent journalists. On a Facebook post last month, Martin announced she was in a hospital in Austin awaiting surgery. Send prayers and healing. So many of her friends did. Maria Amelia Martin was 72. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester. Starts December 9th. Tickets from $25. Ballettheater.org. And the home for little wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. And Ocean State Job Lot committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. 
Once again, that number, 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. Just ahead on Weekend Edition, it's the Sunday Puzzle. But first, we would like you to consider how much you count on WBUR, and then please make that contribution. Listener support is the largest share of our funding, and right now, your support will mean even more because a triple match is in effect. For example, if you can make a contribution of $10 a month, WBUR gets $30 a month. So please uh, get in touch, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Let's say that again because it's easy for these things to just go by so quickly. A triple match put on the table by some members of our Morrow Society who will triple the impact of whatever you can give to WBUR for just the next 17 minutes until 9 o'clock this morning. So you need to be quick about this. But I can tell you, as uh, one of the people, one of the team members involved in planning these fundraisers, I can tell you it does not get better than this. So this is the moment to seize and to make the most of what you can give to WBUR. You give $10 a month, as Sharon says, it becomes $30 a month with that matching money put on top of your gift. If you give $100 as a single gift, that becomes $300. If you give $500, that becomes $1,500 for WBUR. We can do a lot of work to serve our community when you give at a moment when you can get in on this match and triple the impact of your support. Again, it's only until 9 o'clock, about 16 minutes to go to get in on this. Make the most of what you can give to WBUR by going to WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org, or call 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, if your brain works the way some of our brains works, you may think, oh, 15 minutes, that's all the time in the world. I can do all sorts of things. Until you miss it. And then it doesn't quite work that way. So uh, take it from somebody who might have personal experience with procrastination. Uh, Go ahead and make the phone call right now, please, so that you can take advantage of this triple match and triple the impact of your generous contribution. The number is 1-800-909-9287. And the website is WBUR.org. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, that listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It is the largest share of our funding. So that gives you an extra little push along with this triple match to help you understand how important it is for you to right now, without delay, while the triple match is in effect for the next 14 minutes, please make a phone call. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. So again, just so you you know, you're up to speed on what's going on here. In about two minutes, Will and Aisha will do the puzzle. That's that's coming up in just a couple of minutes here on WBUR, but just a few minutes until 9 o'clock to take advantage of a triple match from some members of our Morrow Society. Up to $2,500 we can raise and they will triple every single dollar of that. So whatever you can give toward that it will count triple your money plus matching money plus even more matching money tripling the impact of your contribution right now of 10 or 20 dollars a month 
whatever you can see your way to give, it will be triple for us right now to help us fuel this journalism that you depend on. You got to get in on the match quick because it only goes until 9 o'clock. That's uh, 13 minutes away from now. So call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And here's another reason to go ahead and take advantage of that triple match and uh, support, make your tax-deductible contribution uh, to support WBUR. Uh, Right now, we would be delighted to send you the uh, Eton Radio as our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month. Your $12 a month, of course, will be tripled. Uh, BUR gets $36 a month out of that. So uh, please make that... Call now, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org, and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. Okay, Will, so would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Tom Helfrich of Sacramento. I said, think of a common sign seen along a highway. Rearrange the letters to name something inside a car. And the answer is rest area. And you can rearrange those letters to make rear seat. Oh, okay. So this seemed a bit tough for the listeners. But out of just over 250 entries, Jeff Wood of Madison, Wisconsin is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Jeff. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. (laughs) And so how long have you been playing the puzzle? I think as far back as the late 1980s. Oh, wow. So you were there at the beginning. You you might have been there at the beginning. Yes. The memories are a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time back. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, um, I'm a pretty busy primary care physician. But um, outside of that, my partner and I love doing anything outdoors. We hike a lot and um, bird watch and wildlife watch. That's a very busy life, especially being a primary care physician. And I mean, I don't like the bird watching. That's because, you know, I don't like those birds, but I like that you keep an eye on them. Uh, (laughs) Know your enemy. (laughs) Exactly. But Jeff, if you could do all that, I know you can do the puzzle. So, but I got to ask, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes, I am. Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Jeff and Aisha, this is a good two-person puzzle. I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence conceals the name of a U.S. city phonetically. For example, if I said, any good auctioneer can rebuff a lowball offer, you would say buffalo, which is hidden phonetically inside rebuff a lowball. Oh, boy. 
Okay. Stunned <laughs> silence. Here we go. Number one. Before pitching a ball, can a southpaw tuck it under his armpit? And it's a city in Rhode Island. Would it be Paw Tucket? Paw Tucket is it. The demolitionists want to tear a hotel down. Uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. Excellent. The Hawaiian film director plans to dub ukulele music into the soundtrack. It's a city in Iowa. Oh, D Dubuque. Dubuque. Dubuque, you got it. Amanda got a bunch of steady catering gigs. It's a city in both Illinois and Georgia. Oh, oh, I think I know this one. It Go ahead, Aisha. Uh, is it Decatur? Decatur, yeah. Decatur, Illinois, and Decatur, Georgia. Oh, good. very good. Thank you, Aisha. Nice going. <laughs> That's not the way coherent thoughts are produced. It's a city in Texas. Um, That's not the way coherent thoughts are produced. Oh, uh, Waco. Waco is it. Maggie is the most serene au pair we've ever had. It's a city in Nevada. Maggie is the most serene oh, au pair uh, we've ever had. Uh, uh, Reno. Reno is it. Given your perfect SAT scores, I'd rate you genius level academically. City in Oregon. Given your perfect SAT scores, I'd rate you genius level academically. In Oregon. Oh my gosh. Given your. And it's toward the second half of the sentence. I'd rate you genius level. Genius. Oh, Eugene, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon. Good. Yeah. And here's your last one. It's an easy one. Bullwinkle would sometimes be Little Rocky in old cartoons. And that would be Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock, Arkansas. Good job. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my gosh. That was tricky. But once you get the hang of it, it's not too bad. But I'm glad that you were able to get the vast majority of these because it's, <laughs> it's a little it's a little tricky, right? How do you feel? Well, like most people, I feel relieved and exhilarated. <laughs> They're pretty fun. You did a great job. <laughs> well, thank you for your help. You saved me. Oh, no, no problem. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jeff, what member station do you listen to? Mainly WHA uh, here affiliated with the University of Wisconsin. That's Jeff Wood of Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you both. Happy holidays. Same to you. Okay, Will, so what is next week's challenge? Yes, a muffler is part of an automobile. It's also the name of something you can wear. Think of two other parts of automobiles that are also things you can wear, and these two words have the same number of letters and the same first two letters in the same order. What are they? So again, two parts of an automobile that are also things you can wear, and these two words have the same number of letters and the same first two letters. What are they? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 7th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and the puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University, hosting its 45th annual art sale December 8th through the 10th. More at smfa.tufts.edu. Stories, interviews, books, puzzles, investigations, tiny desk, podcasts, NPR. Donate. Thanks. And here is how you make your generous contribution to support WBUR and NPR. You can call 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton's with me in the studio. And coming up on Weekend Edition, you'll get the story on a case the U.S. Supreme Court hears this week with huge implications for the justice system. The case involves the opioid settlement and the family behind OxyContin, the Sacklers. But first, before we get to that story, somehow or other, we have managed to arrive in December, and this is our last WBUR fundraiser for the year. And as you think about your charitable contributions, please consider how much you count on WBUR and then make a monthly gift. And here is a special reason to do that right this very second. A triple match is in effect, and it's only in effect for about the next three and a half minutes. Your generous contribution will be triple match. That triple match is only in effect until 9 o'clock. 800-909-9287 is the number to call. I'm going to give you that again. 800-909-9287. Or you can give uh, just as easily at WBUR.org. While you're there on the phone, ask about or check out on the website the Eton Radio that we have as our thanks for your contribution. This is one of those radios that runs on electricity or batteries like many radios do, but what makes it different is that it also runs on its own little generator so that, you know, in those moments when the power goes out or those days when the power goes out, if that's, you know, the situation sometimes, you're still going to have access to the vital information that you need, and you will be helping us bring that information to you and to our entire community with your support of WBUR. That radio is our thanks this morning for a contribution of $12 a month or $144 all at once. And later on, it's going to be $20 a month. So you're going to save a little, which is always great. And you're going to be supporting WBUR and getting that radio as our thanks for doing that this morning. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. I'll give you that again. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, we rely primarily on voluntary contributions from our listeners to provide all the programs, the stories, the conversations that you count on. And some of you, you know, we know have already uh, made a contribution to WBUR uh, this year, um, you know, because you want to provide that valuable support. Um, and if you have contributed to WBUR, um, maybe you can give a little bit more right now. Maybe Maybe you can uh, take this moment, step up, 
maybe give $10 a month additional. That will fuel the journalism that makes us all stronger and more informed. Um, If that is the right move for you, then please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Just think about the breadth of the stories that we're all, you know, leaning into right now. There's, of course, the uh, situation that continues to unfold between Israel and Hamas. There is the war in Ukraine that has been going on for quite a while now, and we still are Uh, you know, allocating resources to be able to stay on that for you. We have the family shelter crisis here in Massachusetts that we're paying attention to. The MBTA, so many stories locally, nationally, and internationally, they all require resources. And the reason that we have those resources is thanks to listeners who have stepped up earlier in the year and are in earlier fundraisers and made contributions to WBUR. We're asking you to join them right now because the honest truth is we need more members and more member dollars to be able to keep pace with all of the news around us that you're counting on hearing and counting on understanding in the way that you get that news from WBUR. So give us a call 1-800-909-9287 or give online at wbur.org and remember with your contribution of twelve dollars a month we would be delighted to uh thank you with an eton radio this is the uh self-powered uh radio that will keep you connected no matter what's going on with your power 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbur.org I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israel's bombardment of Gaza has stretched into a third day following the collapse of a week-long ceasefire. Gaza's health ministry says some 200 Palestinians have been killed in the renewed military campaign. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. He reports that Israel is now restricting humanitarian aid to Gaza despite calls from the U.S. to increase aid for civilians, including fuel, water, food, and medicine. The Gaza border authority says only 100 aid trucks have entered Gaza since the renewal of combat. That's down from the 200 aid trucks a day during last week's ceasefire. Israeli defense officials say the humanitarian pause is over and blamed Hamas for violating the agreement on releasing more Israeli hostages. The officials say they were allowing in aid now because of requests from the U.S. Israel is now intensifying its bombings on South Gaza, where Israel had ordered Palestinians to flee to. The Israeli military telephoned Palestinians in Khan Yunis in South Gaza, ordering them to evacuate further south to Rafah, near the Egyptian border. The UN says shelters in the south are already overcrowded. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Mark Regev is a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He told the BBC today that Israel is doing all it can to keep civilians in Gaza out of harm's way. There are specific areas inside Khan Yunus where we've notified that in those specific areas there is expected to be combat and we're urging people 
to leave so they're not caught up in the crossfire. And we've designated specific safer areas for people to move to. The whole idea is to save lives. That's the, that's the point of requesting people to leave. Ragev says Israel is making a maximum effort to protect civilians and blame civilian casualties on Hamas. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said this weekend the protection of civilians is a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative, warning that Israel risks driving civilians into the arms of the enemy. There are just about six weeks until the symbolic starting gun for the 2024 presidential race goes off at the Iowa caucuses. NPR's Amy Held reports that Republican candidates are hoping by showing up a lot they'll reap the rewards. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis completed his 99-county Iowa tour in Jasper County. He told supporters he considers himself a servant, not a ruler. For months, he's crisscrossed Iowa from the state fair to ice cream parlors, but has hardly made a nibble into former President Donald Trump's sizable lead. 100 miles away at his own rally in Cedar Rapids, Trump looked past the primaries at a potential general election rematch. If Joe Biden wants to make this race a question of which candidate will defend our democracy and protect our freedoms and I say to Crooked Joe, and he's crooked, the most corrupt president we've ever had. We will win that fight. Trump is facing felony charges for trying to undermine the democratic process in the last election. Amy Held, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today, the city of Worcester will mark the 24th anniversary of the cold storage and warehouse fire. Six firefighters were killed when they entered the abandoned building to search for two people inside. Later, it was learned the couple already had escaped. At 6 this evening, a ceremony will take place at the fire station that was built at the site of the fire. The state campaign finance office is calling out Brookline Public Schools employees for violations. Brookline News reports that school principals and the superintendent use school computers and email addresses to email parents about ballot questions. The emails were about the impact of tax-related proposals in town. After winning the Maine State Championship, the Lewiston High School boys soccer team will be at the Patriots game today. Pat's owner, Robert Kraft, has invited the group to ring the bell before kickoff and watch the game from a private club. Following the deadly mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine in October, the teammates vowed to win the championship for their city. It is 45 degrees in Boston, rainy today, some fog and highs in the mid-40s. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose. Work we do with you and for you, and we can only do it with your support. So please donate to this station today. This station is 90.9 WBUR, and the way to offer your support 
you have a couple choices. You can call 1-800-909-9287. You can also make your generous contribution online at WBUR.org. Ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll hear from former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Her new book is titled Oath and Honor, A Memoir and a Warning, and it's about former President Trump's efforts to remain in office after losing the 2020 elections. And as you think about what you can count on and you do count on from WBUR day in and day out, please think about making that tax-deductible contribution to support the coverage we bring you here on WBUR, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And you know, rather than tell you what you're make, how you're making a difference, let's show you with an example of a story that we've been following for months here on WBUR, the Massachusetts family shelter system that has recently burst at the seams. Here's Gabriella Emanuel. Massachusetts has one of the country's only state-run family shelter systems, and thousands of families turn to this system at their hardest moment. And this year, what happened is that there was a record number of parents and children in our state that needed a homeless shelter. Some of these people were longtime residents, others were new arrivals, but there were so many people that the state had to close the doors and create a wait list. This is something that has never happened before in the system's 40-year history. For the first time ever, like, we really had nowhere to send a family. They were just completely drained. They didn't want any sort of dinner. Like, the mom, she kept telling us, se nos quito el hambre, which means, like, my hunger was taken from me because of the stress. This is one of the stories we brought you from a community group that stretched very thin. We also heard from lawmakers who hold the purse strings, pastors, advocates, local and state officials, and even experts in other places with similar predicaments. And of course, we heard from the families who are seeking answers and seeking help. I'm a single dad of two boys, and my son has medical issues where it's almost impossible for me to go to work. And last time I checked, it's 28 degrees outside this morning. Where the hell am I going with my children? Our state's right to shelter law is this pretty unique commitment to support our most vulnerable neighbors. But the system is at a breaking point, and it's up to the state, the community, the people to figure out what happens next. At WBUR, our job is to distill what's important in this kind of messy and complicated system. We're doing it because you need the information in order to be engaged and involved in charting that path forward. Messy, complicated systems uh, like the situations like that do not resolve themselves overnight. We are going to have to stay on this story, and we will. We are committed to that. But it takes tremendous investment, and that's why if you're not currently giving to WBUR, if you're not a current member of WBUR, we hope you will join our members right now because the fact of the matter is we just need more members and more member dollars to keep pace with this coverage that you need. So please make a year-end contribution right now at WBUR.org, or you can call one 800 909 9287. And remember, when you make a contribution of $12 a month, we would be delighted to thank you for that contribution with an Eton self powered radio. Once again, 1 800 909 9287, or go to wbur.org. And thank you.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A case at the heart of America's deadly opioid crisis goes before the U.S. Supreme Court this week. It involves Purdue Pharma and its owners, the Sackler family, and could set a major precedent, shaping the way wealthy people and corporations use bankruptcy to shield themselves from lawsuits. NPR's addiction correspondent, Brian Mann, has been following the case. Hi, Brian. Hi, Isha. This family, this company has become infamous. Remind us of the backstory that's central to this case. Yeah, this starts back in the 90s when Purdue Pharma, this little-known company, won federal approval for a time-release opioid pain medication called OxyContin. And under direction of members of the Sackler family, the company marketed OxyContin as less risky, less addictive than other opioid medications. And it worked. Suddenly, doctors and dentists all over the country were prescribing a lot more pain pills. Only Purdue Pharma's safety claims weren't true. Experts say the OxyContin boom led to the overdose crisis that keeps getting worse in America. It put us on a path to the fentanyl overdose crisis we're in now. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. And in the end, Purdue Pharma wound up pleading guilty to three federal felonies. Thousands of people and communities sued this company, and that pushed Purdue Pharma into bankruptcy. So why is the U.S. Supreme Court involved? Well, it's because the owners of Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers, wanted something controversial. Members of the family who deny any wrongdoing, who've never been charged with any crimes, got rich from OxyContin sales. And They agreed to pay $6 billion out of their private fortunes into this bankruptcy settlement. In exchange, they demanded complete immunity from all those thousands of opioid lawsuits, and they won. A federal bankruptcy judge signed off on that deal, uh, cash in exchange for a clean legal slate. And that infuriated Mike Quinn. He's an attorney who represents clients who still want to sue the Sacklers. He says this kind of bankruptcy maneuver sets a dangerous precedent where the rich can pay cash to avoid accountability. They're just going to know they can act recklessly. And if they do it through a company and that company makes enough money, they'll be able to get away with it. And Aisha Quinn wasn't the only one who opposed the Sackler deal. The U.S. Justice Department challenged it, which is how this case wound up before the Supreme Court. And presumably other wealthy people who get into legal troubles that could cost them money would want to use these same tactics, right? That's exactly right. And this is another reason the Justice Department got interested in this case. A growing number of wealthy corporations, organizations and individuals have been doing what the Sacklers did offering cash into bankruptcy settlements in exchange for a kind of firewall against lawsuits. And one of the most high-profile cases involves Johnson & Johnson, the company that used to manufacture talc baby powder, which thousands of women say gave them cancer. I'm a young girl. My entire life has been dramatically changed. That's Hannah Wilt, a woman I interviewed in New Jersey. She tried to sue Johnson & Johnson after she got sick. But the company, remember, one of the wealthiest corporations in the world, used a bankruptcy maneuver to freeze her lawsuit. What I see is who can play the game best. Big corporations trying to work the system in a way that they don't have to take full responsibility is not something new. And Hannah Wilt actually died of her cancer last year at the age of 27, while her Johnson & Johnson case was still stuck in bankruptcy court. (sighs) My goodness. Obviously, this bankruptcy maneuver has a lot of critics. 
But I understand that there are some unlikely supporters of this maneuver as well, right? That's right. And we'll hear some of those arguments before the Supreme Court tomorrow. Uh, Supporters believe allowing rich people and corporations to pay for these legal protections is a quick, efficient way to get a lot of money to victims, to people who've been hurt in some way. Let's go back to Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. Some people say if the Supreme Court strikes down that bankruptcy deal, a lot of opioid victims will be stuck without any compensation. Here's Ryan Hampton. He was addicted to OxyContin for years. If the Supreme Court overturns the appellate court decision, financial recovery for 120,000 victims over $750 million goes up in the smoke overnight. And Arik Price agrees. He's an attorney who represents a lot of people harmed by OxyContin. He says if this bankruptcy deal is struck down by the Supreme Court, it's going to lead to legal chaos. There's going to be a lot of infighting that I don't know if it ever gets settled. So, Brian, what are you watching for when the Supreme Court takes up this case tomorrow? Well, this is a big precedent-setting moment, and a lot of legal experts I talk to say they think the Supreme Court is going to strike down the Sacklers deal. And that means this family at the center of the opioid crisis could wind up back in court facing this tsunami of lawsuits. It could take years or even decades to resolve. I should say I reached out to the Sacklers about this moment and a representative said they have no comment. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you so much. Thank you. More Palestinians in Gaza could end up dying from untreated diseases than during the current conflict with Israel. That's a stark warning from the World Health Organization unless a territory's health system is urgently restored. More than 200 health care workers have been killed since the start of the war on October 7th. Joining us to discuss the deteriorating situation in Gaza is World Health Organization spokeswoman Dr. Margaret Harris. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Aisha. It's a pleasure to be with you. So how many of Gaza's hospitals are actually functioning? This is a movable number. At the worst stage, we only had about eight hospitals functioning. And by functioning, they were only really able often just to deal with the huge numbers of people who were wounded. Now, Since we had this pause, we were able to bring in fuel, medicines like anaesthetic drugs, the things that let them do more. And 15 hospitals were able to provide some services, even including Al-Shifa Hospital, which was able to start dialysis. And Al-Shifa Hospital is Gaza's largest hospital, right? Yes, that's right. And most advanced. But now, unfortunately, horrifically, the fighting has begun again. And we know that Gaza can't afford to lose any more hospitals or hospital beds. The priority at the moment is just treating those injured in the Israeli bombardment. But are they receiving the treatment that they need? The healthcare workers are doing the very best. And as you mentioned, we've lost a lot of healthcare workers either to bombardment or direct attacks on hospitals themselves. They simply don't have the places to provide the care. There are 20,000 healthcare workers across Gaza, but they need to be in a safe place that's equipped and permits them to deliver the healthcare. They're running from patient to patient. They're trying to at least care for the wounds, give the pain relief, but it is not in any way the level of care they would normally be able to provide. It's Band-Aid medicine at best. And the people who've got other conditions are not getting any care at all. 
And obviously, if you need dialysis or, or something like that, you really can't go without that. That's correct. So that's why it was critical to keep those dialysis services functioning. There are at least a thousand patients we know of who are in acute kidney failure who need that dialysis or they die. Now, there are lots of efforts to try to transfer them to the south or transfer them out to Egypt. But again, there will be other people whose chronic illnesses tip them over into kidney failure, tip them over into diabetic coma, tip them over into heart attacks and not the services that can possibly deal with that. According to the UN, nearly 2 million Palestinians have now been forced to flee their homes. Many are in cramped conditions or in tents. How worried are you about the spread of disease in those sorts of conditions? We are extremely concerned and we're already seeing very, very worrying outbreaks such as outbreaks of jaundice, which we are presuming is hepatitis A because the conditions for hepatitis A are everywhere. That's dirty water, lack of sewerage services, overcrowding. But we can't actually test to know whether it's hepatitis A because the laboratory we would normally use is in our Shifa hospital and, and is currently not functioning. The main diseases we are seeing spreading currently are the diarrheal diseases because, again, this is down to being super overcrowded. So you just can't wash your hands. You're constantly basically exposed to everybody else's bacteria and viruses. And we're seeing huge numbers of diarrhea on what we would normally see in populations in Gaza at this time. With the pause in fighting now over, how worried are you that this health system, which was already so damaged, that it could simply collapse? We're extremely concerned. Gaza can't afford to lose any more hospitals or hospital beds. This was a health system already on its knees. Now, during the pause, it was like we could give it a hand, get it up. And it was extraordinary how quickly there was some bounce back. But that is all about to be lost. And also all the things we need to do, like bring in the many teams around the world who want to come in and help. They can't come in until there is a safe place and safety for them to do their work. So all the enormous work that needs to be done to repair the massive damage and to get the system back up and running can't happen until there's a ceasefire that holds. That's Dr. Margaret Harris from the World Health Organization. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ayesha. Listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. 
PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. This is Lisa Mullins. Support from our listeners does more than pay for WBUR's journalism. Your support makes editorial independence a reality. And it all starts with your gift of $10 or maybe $15 a month. Those ongoing monthly contributions are how we pay for independent journalism. Sustain the journalism that sustains you. Start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. Once again, that phone number, 1-800-909-9287. Or you can make your contribution at WBUR.org. Listener support is the largest share of our funding. We are asking you to please join the listeners who have become members, who offer that support to sustain WBUR, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. Coming up on Weekend Edition, you'll hear about the conflict between South American neighbors Venezuela and Guyana. Venezuela insists it has claimed more than half of Guyana's territory, territory that is rich in oil. You will get that story and more coming up here on WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio, it's Jay Clayton. And again, we are asking you to make your monthly tax-deductible contribution. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And you know, listener support, your support has always been important to WBUR. It is the bedrock of this service. But it's even more important now. Coming out of the pandemic, many businesses still haven't recovered to the point where they can support WBUR at the level that they used to or in some cases at all. So we are counting on getting more members and more member dollars to fuel our journalism. So if you've been listening for a little bit or even a longer bit and you're not a member, we hope this is the moment that you will make a decision to change that and join the listeners who go beyond listening and also help sustain this service and hold it up for everybody. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, talked with Morning Edition host uh, Rupa Shinoy about another reason why your support is especially important right now. Let's listen. WBUR and NPR will always be free. We're a public service. And this is especially relevant today because we now live in a world where only people who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources. And in my mind, that further divides the haves and have-nots. And in contrast, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. Sustaining members provide the support we need to make that possible and to ensure that we're here today and tomorrow and for generations to come to cover the most consequential issues of our time and to make Boston an even better place to live. Listener support is the biggest share of the funding that brings you all of this coverage. I know you're counting on WBUR, and we hope that you will take just a minute to make a contribution at WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. We are tethered in our daily lives to the uh, power grid, to the internet these days, but 
it's important to still have vital information and access to it even when the power goes out and we've got the solution for that this morning we will thank you with an eton radio this radio can power itself so you will have access to vital information during a powder power outage or any other time that you need it you can have one of these radios as our thanks for your contribution of twelve dollars a month or 144 dollars all at once if you prefer to do it that way Normally, it's $20 or $240, so so take advantage of a little savings and support your NPR station, WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287, and thank you very much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Here at NPR, we got an early look at Liz Cheney's new book, Oath and Honor, a memoir and a warning. The former member of Congress doesn't hold back in the book, accusing her party of cowardice in the face of a president who actively tried to overturn the 2020 election and encouraged a violent mob to attack the Capitol. In her book, Cheney called many of her former colleagues in the U.S. House collaborators and enablers. She sat down with NPR's Layla Fado, and Layla's here now with us to preview that conversation. Hi, Layla. Hi, Asia. Your full interview airs tomorrow on Morning Edition, but while we have you here on Weekend Edition, a show I really like, (laughs) I want to ask you about that subtitle, A Memoir and a Warning. She's waving the red flag here. She's saying danger ahead. Yes, yes. By the way, a show I really like as well. Um, But yeah, (laughs) she's warning that that danger that we saw in 2020 is not over. She says that this country could have lost its democracy when Donald Trump concocted a lie about winning the election. And she says that she watched her colleagues that she once respected start to repeat that lie, sometimes out of fear because of threats from the former president, Donald Trump, or because they thought that was the way to stay in power. And her warning now is that all of this is not behind this country. The danger she writes about in her book, the weeks after Trump lost the election, the concocting of a lie about winning the election, that Republican state officials, U.S. courts, all found to have zero merit, and the months she and other House representatives spent investigating and presenting evidence to the American public to prove a conspiracy to overthrow the will of the people. That is still present. And basically, in her view, if Trump is elected again, it could spell the end of democracy in the U.S., the Cheney name was once synonymous with the Republican Party, and then came Donald Trump, and now Liz Cheney has this book really criticizing the leading members of the GOP. Her saying democracy is at stake is a huge deal, mm-hmm. but it's also a very remarkable political moment, right? Right. I mean, 
like you say, she does not hold back in this book. And she said she wants Americans to know everything that happened in Congress and in her party that led to what she calls a terrorist attack on the Capitol. And she names names, describing former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as a hypocrite, a coward and a liar who told her Trump acknowledged that he knew he lost the election only to then repeat Trump's lie on television. She depicts the current speaker, Mike Johnson, as a dangerous anti-constitutionalist. And she says she wants people to know every detail of what happened in her party and in Congress and how many of her former colleagues, she says, betrayed their oath. So I asked her if she still considers herself a Republican. I think that the Republican Party as it exists today is dangerous to the country. And I think the most important thing to do now without question is to make sure we stop Donald Trump. What American politics looks like after that, what the Republican Party or a new Republican Party or a new conservative party looks like after that remains to be seen. If she doesn't see herself in this party in its current form, then where does that leave her? Well, I mean, she says there needs to be a third way. There needs to be something else. And she's very, very worried about the future. And you can hear more of our conversation on Monday. That's NPR's Layla Fado. Layla, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aisha. The racketeering trial of rapper Young Thug started last week in Atlanta after months for jury selection. The prolific and influential musician has collaborated with artists ranging from Drake to Elton John. And just four years ago, his album So Much Fun debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200. The state of Georgia alleges Young Thug's lyrics depict real-life crimes. Prosecutors say YSL, the initials of Young Thug's record label, Young Stoner Life, also stood for Young Slime Life. That's a street gang they claim he led and used to direct crimes from murder to drug dealing. Here's Fulton County Prosecutor Adrian Love in her opening statement. He tells you we committing them crimes. Hop out and shoot. Roll one up for the gang. He's not using gang colloquially. The evidence will show he's telling you they are a gang. Young Thug's attorney, Brian Steele, says those lyrics are art, not evidence. This is the environment that he grew up in. These are the people he knew. These are the stories he knew. These are the words that he rhymed. This isn't a ballad <laughs> or a book. These are phrases in a song. NPR Music's Rodney Carmichael is following the trial and has covered the intersection of hip-hop and policing for the podcast, Louder Than a Riot. Hi, Rodney. Hey, Aisha. How you doing? Rodney, for those unfamiliar with Jeffrey Williams, known as Young Thug, what has made him so influential as a musician? Well, when you talk about trap music, especially in its current form, I mean, Young Thug, he's the king of it. You know, the melodic sing-songy flows, the animated delivery, and really these often indecipherable lyrics. These are all defining characteristics that he brought to a subgenre of rap that really went global over the last decade. And beyond that, he's also just a straight-up star. I mean, he's somebody who's always skirted controversy, even in his fashion sense. 
in ways that really just have always made him the center of attention. So tell us more about the case prosecutors are making and how they're using Young Thug's lyrics. Okay, so Young Thug is at the center of what's already turning out to be a really historic RICO case. And RICO laws, of course, are the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, originally established to target and take down organized crime outfits like the mafia. But in recent years, prosecutors around the country have started using a lot of these laws to target really loosely organized street gangs and, and their youthful members. Basically, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her team of prosecutors, they maintain that Young Thug is the head of YSL or Young Slime Life. And they claim that they'll be presenting all kinds of evidence, including jail phone calls and social media posts, that Young Thug's lyrics will also be presented by prosecutors who say that they detail many of the violent acts that he's had committed. And the judge in this case has already ruled that 17 lines of lyrics from Young Thug and other YSL artists can be used in trial. I know it's still early, but but what's likely to be Young Thug's defense? Yeah, well, it's interesting because the defense has really already started inside and outside the courtroom. Uh, Young Thug's lawyers have called it racist, partly because this use of his lyrics and any musician's lyrics is something that really only consistently happens to hip hop artists who of course are predominantly black and young thugs label 300 entertainment has also been really vocal in the push to get state and federal laws on the books that will make it harder to criminalize lyrics in this way. Pre-trial and jury selection went on for almost a full year. Mm-hmm. And this whole time, Young Thug's been uh, locked up. Yeah. Now that the trial finally started, what were some things that stood out from the first week? Yeah, this trial is already expected to go another six months to a year. And it started off in really dramatic fashion last week. In defense of his client's character, Young Thug's attorney insisted that the thug and Young Thug is actually an acronym that stands for truly humbled under God. There was also a lot of courtroom delay over prosecutors taking issue with a picture posted online that showed the faces of some of the members of the jury, and they're worried that it could expose them to jury tampering. This could have a big ripple effect. What's been mm-hmm. the reaction from the music industry in Atlanta and, and just more broadly? There is a lot at stake. I mean, depending on the outcome of this trial, it could change the art form really as we know it, especially if Young Thug is ultimately convicted and his lyrics are used to do it. And Atlanta, being the hip hop capital that it is, it might not be seen as such a welcoming city that has been for the culture for so many decades now. That's Rodney Carmichael with NPR Music. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you, Aisha. We're used to seeing death on TV and in the movies, but some clinicians who work with people at the end of life say the most common depictions aren't representative of what happens in the real world. They're trying to shift the stories we tell about death to help people cope better. From member station KQED, April Demboski reports. We've seen it so many times. A young man rushed into the emergency room with a gunshot wound. A flurry of white coats racing the clock. CPR, the heart zapper, the order for a scalpel, STAT. 
This is Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter's biggest pet peeve. Acute, violent death is portrayed many, many, many times more than uh, a natural death. Ungerleiter practiced in the hospital and ICU for seven years. She says television tropes like this ignore the full range of -of end-of-life experiences and the choices people have, like dying at home instead of a hospital. And all those miraculous CPR recoveries, they create false hope. She thinks Hollywood can do better. Really, our goal is to encourage them to write in uh, different kinds of inspiring and nuanced and diverse storylines that are more representative of what's actually possible. Ungerleiter is the founder of Enwell, a nonprofit that hosts an annual conference. It's like the TEDx for end of life. Please find your seats. Our program is about to begin. It started six years ago in San Francisco, but this year it was in Los Angeles for the first time. Ungerleiter wants to harness the power of primetime TV. We're trying to embed ourselves within Hollywood. In addition to the hospice nurses and grief experts, Enwell invited a team of celebrities to the conference stage, like talk show host Amanda Klutz and comedian Tig Notaro. Sitcom star Yvette Nicole Brown was the MC. And when my mom passed, I called all my mm. friends whose mom had passed before and apologized. Because I said, until this moment, I had no idea. Brown had no models for how to grieve or support others in their grief. Now she's trying to set an example for the rest of the entertainment industry. If you are a writer or a producer or a comedian or whatever, talk about grief, talk about death. Enwell has also partnered with researchers at USC Annenberg to find out what's stopping TV producers from using more realistic death narratives. Director of research Erica Rosenthal says they found Hollywood execs are wary that depressing stories will alienate viewers. Entertainment is still a profit-driven system, and the bottom line is, is viewership. She says what many viewers want from TV is escapism, comfort, humor. How do you make end-of-life care funny? A few industry outliers are convinced they can. I hope that we can learn that death stories don't have to be sad or sappy or depressing. J.J. Duncan is the showrunner for the new reality show on NBC's streaming network, narrated by Amy Poehler, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. What is Swedish death cleaning, you say? Basically, cleaning out your crap so that others don't have to do it when you're gone. In the first episode, three Swedes help a 75-year-old woman sort through her belongings and her memories, including working as a singing waitress in Aspen. I sang there for 11 years. Oh, And then I got married. And then, well, I have to tell the truth, it ruined my sex life. (laughs) Duncan says Hollywood is slowly opening up. She couldn't believe producers were willing to do a show with the word death in the title. I mean, that alone is amazing. And we had studio people say, oh, don't say death too much. You know what I mean? Because it's scary. But Duncan says any good story has setup, conflict, and resolution. Maybe a hero's journey. There's no reason death can't fit into the formula. For NPR News, I'm April Domboski in Los Angeles. You're listening.
listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. And here's extra incentive to become a member right now. A triple match is in effect. You give your generous contribution to WBUR, it will be tripled. The catch is that that's only available for the next 17 minutes. So take action now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. WBUR is built on a foundation of listener support. So when you give right now, you're strengthening that foundation. You're strengthening a voice of truth in our community and across our country on NPR. And when you give during a match, a triple match, in fact, that will triple the impact of anything you give monthly or one-time gift, you're further strengthening that voice of truth when we all need it very desperately. So please do what you can. Get in on the triple match. It's only for 17 minutes or until we raise $2,500, whichever comes first. So get in on it while you can right now at 1-800-909-9287. I'll give you that again, 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. And again, you know, We rely primarily on voluntary contributions from our listeners to produce the programs, whether it's Weekend Edition, uh, you know, Morning Edition, Radio Boston, On Point Here. Now, all of these programs that matter so much to you, uh, we are relying on voluntary contributions from our listeners to provide the programs, the stories, the conversations that you count on sometimes that just make your day. And so if you are listening now, that's your cue to make a contribution. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and do that right now because for the next 15 minutes, a triple match is in effect. But honestly, you don't really have to worry about those next 14 minutes. Please do this now before you lose the opportunity to have the impact of your generous contribution tripled. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. 1-800-909-9287. Or WBUR.org is where you can get in on the way, on the uh, match online, the triple match. And, you know, in this season of giving, we've got some great ways to thank you for your support, including the Eton radio that powers itself when there's no 
electricity if you have power out for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days this radio will become your best friend because you'll still be able to get all the access to the news and information that you need during that critical time that's our thanks for your contribution of 144 dollars or 12 dollars a month the great thing about getting that radio as our thanks right now is that the impact of your gift triples to $432 or $36 a month, either way. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. The website is WBUR.org. It is 14 minutes before 10 o'clock. Wait, wait, don't tell me is coming up then. The match ends then or sooner because we can raise and triple match up to $2,500. So get in on that before the matching money runs out or the time runs out and you have missed your chance. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And we're asking you to really take a moment and think about how much you count on WBUR day in, day out, um, on the radio, online, with podcasts, newsletters, uh, WBUR City Space, all the ways that you keep up with what's happening here in and around Boston, um, you know, in, in throughout the U.S. and around the world. This, this service... Um, well, the costs add up, we can tell you that, and uh, we think that WBUR is worth your monthly contribution. If you can make that contribution of $12 a month now, not only will it uh, be uh, subject to the triple match, which means WBUR gets $36 from your $12 a month gift, but also... Uh, we'd be happy to send you that Eton radio, the self-powered radio, so you can stay connected whether or not you have power. Uh, once again, that is our gift to you for your contribution of $12 a month. Normally, that's a $20 per month uh, thank you gift. But right now, that's for $12 a month. The way you make this all happen... Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, this triple match on the table for 12 more minutes or until the money runs out, whichever comes first. So do not wait. Last hour, we had a little match like this, and the money ran out before the end of the hour. It could happen again this time. There's just no way to know. It just depends on the response to the match. So before you miss your chance... Get in on the triple match at WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Or call this number, 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. Since the 1800s, Venezuela and neighboring Guyana have bickered over where the border between the two countries should lie. The dispute has intensified in the wake of huge offshore oil strikes in Guyana. Now, as John Otis reports, Venezuela has launched a campaign to reclaim more than half of the territory. Venezuela is holding a referendum today over the future of a disputed region inside Guyana known as Essequibo. To get out the vote, State TV has broadcast a steady stream of upbeat spots. In this one, a Venezuelan singer insists that Essequibo is ours. 
A jungle region nearly the size of Florida, Essequibo makes up the western two-thirds of Guyana, a former British colony. In a radio interview, Guyana's Prime Minister, Mark Phillips, noted that the border dispute was resolved in Guyana's favor by an international tribunal in Paris in 1899. As far as Guyana is concerned, we have a border that is settled between Guyana and Venezuela. However, Venezuela insists that the judges in the Paris decision had been bought off. The dispute is now before the UN's International Court of Justice, though Venezuela refuses to recognize the court's jurisdiction. The stakes are high. We're talking about one of the most resource-rich areas on the planet. That's Jeff Ramsey, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a Washington think tank. He says Venezuela covets Essequibo's timber, diamonds, and minerals. What's more, in 2015, ExxonMobil discovered huge oil deposits just off the Atlantic coast of Essequibo. In a TV appearance, Nicolás Maduro, Venezuela's authoritarian leader, warned Guyana not to develop oil in the disputed territory and demanded respect for Venezuela's sovereignty. His regime also organized today's referendum, in which Venezuelans will vote on five issues concerning Essequibo. The most audacious proposes annexing Essequibo and issuing Venezuelan identity cards to its residents. In a speech, Guyana's vice president, Barret Jagdeo, mocked the idea. They don't want your ID cards. We are happy to be Guyanese. We're happy to live in our own country. Although armed conflict seems unlikely, Guyana has launched a propaganda offensive with songs about defending its territory. No, we ain't giving up no mountain. No, we ain't giving up no tree. We ain't giving up no river that belongs to me. Ramsey of the Atlantic Council says that in ramping up the conflict with Guyana, Maduro's true aim is to stoke nationalist sentiment. What we're seeing is sort of a classic maneuver from the dictator's playbook. After smothering Venezuela's democracy and overseeing an economic meltdown, Maduro is deeply unpopular. But Ramsey says his push to take back Essequibo could help Maduro drum up support for his campaign to win next year's presidential election. Indeed, Venezuela's claim to the Essequibo region is one of the few things most people agree on in the deeply polarized country. Elvis Paez, a retired engineer who is voting in today's referendum, says he was taught in school that Essequibo belongs to Venezuela. But he adds, I support this referendum, not the Venezuelan government. For NPR News, I'm John Otis. This is NPR News. It's Layla Faldid from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. 
We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Here is how you make your generous contribution to WBUR. You can go to WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. And we have an additional reason for you to do that right now. The impact will be tripled. Your gift will be tripled because of a triple match in effect. It is only in effect for the next six minutes or so until 10 o'clock. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And just an asterisk on that because the matching money may not last until 10 o'clock. We've got a, a re- ability to raise and match up to $2,500. So it is until 10 o'clock or until that pool runs out, whichever comes first. So really jump on this to triple the impact of what you can give to WBUR to help us do exactly what Layla Fadel just said there to be able to keep this voice of truth strong and fight back against misinformation. That is so important, and we do it with listener support. It is the largest share of the funding that keeps WBUR coming to you and to our whole community. So get in on the triple match. Well, you've got just a couple of minutes to go one way or the other, so call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And coming up at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And if you appreciate how big of a role WBUR plays in your life, think about that. We are here right now for Weekend Edition, for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, for all of our programming. We're here thanks to thousands of listeners who have given their money voluntarily over the past several decades. And what we're asking you to do is to join them to join us. Start your monthly contribution today. That contribution fuels the future of WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and do that right now so that you have a good chance of taking part in that triple match. It is only in effect for the next four minutes. And when you give now that your contribution will be tripled as long as that triple match is in effect. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org, where you can get in on the triple match online, but again, only for another couple of minutes until the beginning of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at 10 o'clock. That's coming right up here on WBUR, so get in on the match. And you know, just Sharon, circling back to something that Layla Fadel said a couple of minutes ago, that the decline in local journalism, Mm -hmm. it just keeps accelerating. Two newspapers fold in this country every week. That's how significant this is. We are fortunate here in Boston to still have strong journalism, but the the takeaway from what's going on around us is not to take it for granted. We are here thanks to listeners who choose to give voluntarily. We need more members and more member dollars to keep our voice strong, to keep this strong for you and for everyone who depends on it. That's why it's so important to get in when what you can do will do the most. And that's ha- that's happening right now during this triple match for just the next minute or so, couple of minutes, literally, 
1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org to turn your $10 a month into 30 for us, your $20 a month into 60 for us, your $500 contribution into $1,500 for us. That window is closing in another minute, so call 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And you know, if the amount that feels right for you is to make a contribution of $12 a month so that you can take advantage of that triple match, it'll become $36 a month by the time, it, you know, uh, for, for, for WBUR. Um, if that feels right for you, we will be delighted to thank you. With an Eton radio, it's a self-powered radio so that you can stay connected to vital news, even if or maybe we should say when the power goes out, uh, the way that you make your contribution, 1-800-909-9287. Make that call or go to WBUR.org. You've got about a minute or so left to take part in this triple match. So whatever you give is matched times three, 1-800-909-9287 or, or org. Yeah, so you're giving $144 or $12 a month and getting the radio as our thanks. And of course, that money is helping us fuel this journalism here at WBUR. But if you get in in the next minute or so before this match expires, you're actually having the impact of giving $432 or $36 a month. That is a big win for all of us who depend on WBUR, but it can only happen with your support. So take a minute before the match runs out. It's going to run out in just about a minute. So call 1-800-909-9287. Again, that's 1-800-909-9287. You can also get in on the match at WBUR.org, but that window is closing in a matter of seconds, so take advantage of it right now. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions and from staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories more at staples stores or staples.com this is npr I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.